Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 291, From One God to Two Gods to Three, Quote, Gods. John 1 and Early Christian Theologies. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a presentation I gave in March 2020, just before the big coronavirus lockdown, at a conference in Arkansas put on by the McGinty Town Church of God. I have to thank them for inviting me and for making this very enjoyable conference possible. I do recommend the YouTube version of this talk. There's a lot of heavy history in it, and some parts of it will be easier to follow if you can see my PowerPoints. You can find the YouTube version on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, or you can just search for Trinities Podcast 291 at YouTube. But hey, if you're in the car and you want to hear the version with thinking music, keep on going. Over then to me. This talk I'm going to give you is called From One God to Two Gods to Three, Quote, Gods. And this is part of a wider project of mine to try to understand the prologue of the fourth gospel as it was actually understood when it was written and when it was first received by the original audience. In the last couple of years, I have bought and read many, many commentaries on the gospel according to John. And most of them are, when they get to the prologue, they're incredibly distracted by later ideas. They just cannot get themselves to try to get into John's head uh, and what this might have meant when the gospel was originally written. They immediately start talking about multiple persons and one God and so on. Now let me make an analogy. Imagine that you're reading a letter by Thomas Jefferson written in the year 1775. And in that letter, he says something about, you know, he wants this new country that he hopes to help found to be, you know, truly connected or something like this. And you reading this and you say to yourself, aha, Thomas Jefferson invented the internet. That's just wrong, right? He wasn't talking about the internet. Even if he says something about an information superhighway, I mean, it's just coincidence, right? The idea of the internet never entered into his mind. And The internet just has nothing to do with Thomas Jefferson's writings. And even if you try to smudge it a little bit and say, maybe the roots of the internet are here, maybe the foundations of the internet are here, or you try to fudge it, kind of have it both ways. It is about the internet and it's not. No, that's just wrong. It's an anachronism to think that Thomas Jefferson is ever saying anything about the internet. I'm talking about the problem that historians call anachronism. This is when you project back in history something that just didn't exist at that time. Now, whenever the Gospel of John was written, and this is a matter of dispute, some think it was in the 90s, some think it was somewhat earlier, decades earlier than that, but let's say it was written between 50 and 100 AD. Whenever John was written, there's a big, big time gap to when this triune God language was enforced on the church by the Emperor Theodosius. The idea of a triune God was made mandatory by the emperor in the year 381 at the Second Ecumenical Council at Constantinople. You don't even see any reference to this idea of three persons and one God until right before that council, really like the 370s mostly. It wasn't a required idea, it was people speculating. Okay, well the emperor came in, 
said the Latter-day Nicenes are correct. Everybody else is a heretic. They don't count as Christians. We're going to seize their churches, get rid of their bishops. Okay, so when this idea of a triune God became mandatory is pretty precise. It was 381. So whenever John was written, there's more time between when John was written and when the Trinity was promulgated, the, the triune God doctrine. There's more time between those two things than there is between our time and Thomas Jefferson. There's a vast time gap between 2020 and 1775, right? Well, there's even a vaster time gap between 381 and 95. Okay, so when we're reading John and we're trying to figure out what he is and is not saying in his very interesting introductory portion here, we have to just put off to one side these later ideas because we know they never entered into his mind. The idea of three hypostases and one usia, a tripersonal God, he doesn't mention this in his gospel. He doesn't imply it. He doesn't presuppose it. Any God he talks about is a single person. So what I'm going to spend the most time worrying about in this presentation is what on earth is he up to here in this opening salvo, this sentence with three claims in it. So he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how it's usually translated. And my question is, is he referring to the same God twice, or is he referring to two different gods? So he uses different forms of the Greek word theos two times in this passage. He says, kai halagos ein pros ton theon, and the word was with God, and then kai theos ein halagos, and God was the word. How many gods is he talking about? Is he referring to the same one twice, or is he referring to two different ones, and, he, and there's two different reference to the word God? That's the question of interpretation. Now, some people want to fuss endlessly about how to translate that last phrase. It doesn't use the word the in front of God when he says God was the word in the last part there. And so technically it could be translated a God. And some people, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, argue that it should be translated and the word was a God. Others like to say, no, it's not a God. They correctly make the point that in the New Testament, you can refer to God with or without the the, with or without the definite article. You know, typically it uses the word the, hatheos, but it doesn't have to, and it can still refer to God. You don't have to translate it as a God just because it's lacking the word the in front of it. Some modern translators say, no, it's something like the word was divine, or uh, what God was, the word was, or things like this. I don't really think it matters. Because the question is going to be the same, however you translate this. And I don't think fussing about the translation is going to answer this question that I'm asking. If we translate it, a God, same question. Okay, this God we're talking about, that the word is, is this the same God we just mentioned before, or is it a different one? Right? And if you're saying that the Logos is divine, well, what is it to be divine? It's to be a God. So is this God the same God that was mentioned before, or is it a different one? And if it's saying what God was, the Word was, I mean, isn't that just a roundabout way of saying that the Word was divine? Okay, so back to the same question. Did we just refer to the same God twice in two different ways? Which would be this. Just talking about one God there, one referent. Or are we talking about two different gods in this passage? 
So that's the question I want to address. A lot of people can't bring themselves to address this question, and they use this old crutch that, hey, you know, John is a paradoxical kind of guy. And he is just not able to be consistent. In fact, he's inconsistent with himself right here in the very first sentence of his book. He just, you know, he takes one step and he falls flat on his face as far as consistency is concerned. Trinitarian evangelical theologian Millard Erickson says, commenting on this passage, the issue of the paradoxical relationship of the Son, or Word, to the Father is faced immediately. Here in John 1.1 is the seeming contradiction of the Word being God and yet not being God. Right, the Word's with God. Hmm, he must be somebody else then. Oh, but the Word was God. Nope, that's just God himself. Now, look. <laughs> when you're interpreting anybody, whether you're reading the Bible or a column by humorous Dave Barry, if you think he's just contradicting himself in an opening sentence, I mean, okay, Dave Barry's a bad example. Maybe he's just being funny, okay? But um, in a serious source, if you're interpreting it and the author's contradicting himself right off the bat, you've probably made a big mistake because the author's probably not stupid. He's probably competent to remain consistent with himself for the space of one sentence. So this is really just a non-starter to start gassing about paradoxes and uh, you know, to congratulate John for being super mysterious. Misery loves company, that's a true saying, but also confusion loves company. And people who are confused about Jesus and God love to project their own confusions onto this book. It just lends itself to that because of its abstract terminology. But come on, let's be serious. The guy's not that confused, right? So let's see what else we can come up with. And honestly, I don't think that that option was taken seriously early. There wasn't this tradition of celebrating apparent contradictions as wonderful mysteries. They actually tried to make sense of it. Now, normally in the New Testament, when you see the word God, it's almost always the Father. That's just how they use the word. Now, they occasionally depart from this. You know, they'll, they'll refer in Hebrews 1.8 to a God who has a God. Well, that can't be God. And there's talk about the God of this world. And well, that's not God. But in any context, when you see God in the New Testament, there's this general rule. And this is expressed by this scholar who wrote a whole book about whether Jesus is called God in the New Testament and how many times maybe that is. And so he's exhaustively surveyed all the usage of the word theos in the New Testament. This is his summation of, you know, what it means. He says, whenever theos or hotheos, that's without the the or with the the, whenever those are found in the New Testament, we are to assume that hapater, the father, is the referent, unless the context makes this impossible. So when you see God, you assume it's the father, unless that just doesn't make any sense in the context. Okay, so let's apply this to the sentence that we're looking at here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the Father, and the Word was the Father. Interesting. Well, remember, we're exploring two options. Is he talking about the same God in two different ways, or is he talking about two different gods? Are there two different reference for the term theos in this passage? So the other option would be, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the Father, and the Word was a God, not the Father himself, but somebody else, a God in addition to the Father. 
So those would be the options. Now, if we put one other assumption in there, and I have to say this is just an assumption, it's not something that I am telling you is true, but it's something that a lot of people bring to the text. They look down in verse 14 and it says, the word became fleshed and dwelled among us. Okay, well, starting in, at least in verse 14, that's definitely the man Jesus Christ they're talking about, right? Because then it immediately goes off talking about how awesome Jesus is and how he's greater than Moses and everything. So they say, aha, so the word must mean Jesus, the same person who later became the man Jesus. So if we were to suppose that the logos, the word here is the son, then these would be the two options. In the beginning was the son, and the son was with the father, and the son was the father. That should grate on your Christian ears. Or here's the other option. In the beginning was the son, and the son was with the father, and the son was a God in addition to the father. Uh, hmm, maybe a strange thought. I thought there was only one God. Is that really what John is saying? That turned out actually to be a surprisingly popular view, at least by the time you got to the end of the 100s. So there are these four options, really, in interpreting this sentence. Either it's the same God or it's not the same God, the second God that's mentioned, the second Theos that's mentioned. And either we're going to assume that the Word just is the Son, that those are the same one, or not. Maybe they're different. And it looks like just logically those are all the options. The second theos that's mentioned, it's either the same God as the one mentioned before, or it's another one. And uh, the logos is either supposed to be the Son, or it's not. This, I think, is how the earliest, well, not the earliest, but Christians in the era that I'm concerned about looked at this. I'm specifically talking about the end of the 100s and the early 200s. This is a very difficult subject, what was going on in Christian theology in the end of the 100s and the early 200s. There aren't a whole lot of sources. The sources that we have are all from one side and are just viciously denouncing the other side as horrible heretics. And so it's actually quite hard to figure out what all of these people were saying. But interestingly, if you just map out these four logical options in interpreting John 1, I believe that they just map easily onto mainstream Christian theology as of the year, say, 200. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I connect these four logical options with the mainstream theologies of that time. starting in the upper left. So if we're assuming that it's the same God and the Word is the Son, same being as the Son, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was the Father. Well, this is what those people were saying who historians since the 1800s have called modalistic monarchians, or sometimes they get mocked as patroposians because they think the Son is the Father, so it was the Father who got crucified and died. Well, that can't be right, you know. Okay, go one over to the next option. 
So if the word is not the son, but we're talking about the same God as before when we're talking about the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with the father, and the word was the father. This is what people in this era that historians call dynamic monarchians thought. Basically, they thought, yeah, is there something divine in Jesus? Mm, yeah, in a sense. But, you know, in John, Jesus says, uh, my father is in me, does the works, is doing these works through me, basically. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, Paul says. And so, yeah, there is something divine, but there's not two natures. There's not another person in the man Jesus. There's just the man Jesus. And then there's like God's wisdom and power uh, and message that's in him, that's working through him. It's the Father working through him. So those are called by historians dynamic monarchians. Okay, go to the third option, bottom left. If it's not the same God and the Word is the Son, then you have in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was a God in addition to the Father. Okay, so the Son of God is this lesser God, basically. And this is what the Logos theorists thought, people like Justin Martyr. In fact, he seems to have kind of started this whole Logos theory thing. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. The idea here seems to be that there's this second lesser God. At a certain point in time, this second lesser God took on a body, and that's Jesus. So some theologians and historians call this a Logos Sarx Christology. There's a body, and there's the Logos, and that's what Jesus amounted to. Okay, fourth option. So the word was not the Son. This is not the same God we're talking about as before when we're talking about the word. So the bottom right of this chart. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with the Father, and the Word was a God in addition to the Father. These are Logos theorists that said, well, the one true God, now that's the Father, but there's also this lesser God. This lesser God, in the fullness of time, kind of partnered up with a man. And so, when you're looking at Jesus, there's really two persons there. There's the man, miraculously conceived, the son of Mary descendant of David, and so on. There's the man, but there's also this ancient lesser deity that was around before the world existed and God created through him. He's there as well. And this is exactly what Origen thought and what Tertullian thought. Now, is that a good idea? I'll come back to that in a bit. Okay, so I think as far as, you know, roughly around the, two, the year 200 is concerned, this is what you had as far as interpreting John 1. You had Logos theorists, and then you had Monarchians of two different kinds. I think that's kind of revealing. Now, what does the word end up being on these four options? What's the bottom line about the Christology? Again, start at the upper left here. So if the word just is the Son, and we're talking about the same God— then the word or the son, same thing, is a mode or attribute or action of God that is of the Father by which God animated a body resulting in Jesus. I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure that's docetism. God puppeteering a body, that's not a man. Go down one. If it's not the same God, but the word is the son. So now we have the word or the son is a lesser God in addition to God the Father who gained a body and so lived as Jesus. I'm sorry, I think that's docetism, right? Docetism is Jesus is not really a man. He looks like one, sure. He actually isn't one. He's some other kind of being. 
So why would you think that a lesser deity who could somehow get itself a human body, why would you think that was a man? Why would you think that is, as C.S. Lewis would say, a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve? It looks like it wouldn't be. If a demon could uh, somehow get rid of you and take over your body, suppose that was possible, that demon would not thereby become a human. It'd be a demon with a body. If movies have taught me anything, it would be talking in a growly voice and drooling and cursing at priests. Okay, so, I mean, it looks like you don't have a human Jesus on these two left options. Go to the upper right one. So the word is not the son, and we're talking about the same God when we talk about the logos being theos. So then the word would be something like a mode, like a way God is, an attribute or an action of God the Father, which was active through the man Jesus. That's the dynamic monarchian. So you have a man, and he's empowered by God to do signs and wonders among you. Hmm, that sounds familiar. I think I might have heard that somewhere before. Fourth option, bottom right. Okay, so the word is not the son, but we're not talking about the same God when we talk about the Logos. So the word is a lesser God in addition to God the Father. Uh, and this lesser God lived in a mysterious union with the man Jesus. So you have an ancient divine son. I don't say eternal because these Logos theorists were really squishy about that. Some of them, like Tertullian, very clearly say that God, when it was time to create, he wanted to not do it directly. So then he brought into existence this Logos, and then he had the Logos create for him. Okay, so the Logos, it was already there when creation happened, but it's not eternal on that view. Others said, no, the, the Logos is eternal. But if you go back far enough in time, it was like God's reason or something. I don't think that's coherent. I don't think that makes any sense at all, but that's what some of them thought. Okay, now I'm not going to talk more about the development of theology right now, but some of you who have studied the development of theology in the first four or five hundred years of Christianity, which of these four options is the main way that mainstream orthodoxy went by the time you get to the three and four hundreds, like which of the four is closest to what they thought? You think it's the first one? There were people who thought that, like Marcellus and maybe Athanasius, the upper left one. But I would argue that's one of the other ones. I think it's the lower right one. When they started talking about two natures, they had a human nature and a divine nature in Jesus, and the natures were beings, like selves. So the divine nature in Jesus, the way they thought about it was, it was a God, a lesser God. They eventually started saying that it was eternal, just like God, the Father is eternal. Uh, and then the human nature, that was a man. So orthodoxy really kind of headed in the direction of the fourth option, although they don't talk about two sons. They forbade talking about it that way. But the two natures view that one out basically is the same as the fourth option. But never mind that. Our question is, what does John mean? What is John up to? Okay, let's not get in a tizzy about councils and later developments. We're thinking when this was written in the year 90 or the year 7068 or whenever this was written, what was meant? What would the original recipients have understood? When the Trinity's podcast returns, I look to the scriptural background of this passage to rule out three of the four options.
Well, I think if you move on just slightly in the prologue and see what it says next, I think it points us in a certain direction. So verse three, all things came into being through him, that's the word, and without him, the word, not one thing came into being. Now, this is something that John's audience would have been familiar with. This idea that God creates through his word was not something new in John's time. As a matter of fact, if you were paying attention at all in the synagogue, or equally well in early Christianity, you just couldn't miss this idea of God creating through his word. Very beginning of the Hebrew Bible, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So he created by speaking. Now, later on, he says, let us make man in our image and likeness. And most contemporary interpreters think that he's addressing the divine council there, what we would call angels. But even though he says, hey, let us do this, it proceeds then to say that he did it with a singular verb. I think it's like when you're hanging out at Thanksgiving and your grandma says, hey, let's make some more pie. We're going to run out of pie. And then she makes it herself. So she's kind of announcing her intention But, you know, she doesn't really need your help. You're no good at making pie. So, yeah, in the Old Testament, God is credited in Genesis with creating everything just by speaking it into existence. And obviously, the word there is not like a helper for God. It's not like there were two involved, God, oh, and also God's word. And it was like a group project. That idea just isn't there, right? Another famous passage that sounds more like John, because it talks about the word of the Lord, the psalm says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. Kind of saying the same thing twice. Psalm 148, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. Again, God does it without any helper, without any intermediary. He just says it's so, and it's so. That's a pretty impressive way of creating, isn't it? That's not how we create. When we create, we have to go and assemble all the materials, get yourself a bunch of plywood and screws and nails and stuff. Then you go to work. But God just says, let it be, and it is. Okay, so, you know, in the prophets, he very emphatically takes 100% of the credit for creating. Isaiah 45, 12, I made the earth and created humankind upon it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Isaiah 44, 24, I am Yahweh who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth. Do you have to take this literally that God, you know, literally got his hands dirty? I don't think so, but saying I did it with my own hands is a way of emphatically saying that it was all me. Like, I didn't order this from a catalog. I didn't ask somebody to do this for me. It was just 100% me. So it's pretty clear that in the Old Testament, God's creating word isn't an agent in addition to God. There's one actor, there's one agent, there's one doer there. That's the Lord God Almighty. And there is talk about his word, but word isn't a second God or a second creator or anything like that. Now, I think this is relevant for interpreting John 1, and I got some help here from somebody you may or may not have heard of. Do any of you know who Nathaniel Lardner was? 
I wish more people did. He is one of the greatest apologists of all time and also one of the greatest patristic scholars of all time. He had this insanely encyclopedic knowledge of ancient sources and uh, he could read them in the original languages and he published these giant tomes kind of defending the reliability of New Testament writings by comparing them with other ancient writings. And um, he was what we would call a biblical Unitarian. He has a very interesting letter that was written in uh, 1730 discussing John 1 and grappling with this question that I asked at the start of the presentation. Is the Logos, if we're saying that the Logos is a theos, is it the same theos that was mentioned before or is it another one? And this is what he says. Who should this be, talking about this word that made all things, but God the Father, the one living and true God, and author of life and all being? Are there more creators than one? Would any Jew or disciple of Jesus ascribe the creation of the world to any but God, or equally well, to God's reason or understanding or discretion, his wisdom, his power, his word, his spirit, which is the same as God himself? And then on the part of the prologue that says, he came to his own and his own received him not, still talking about the word, he says, I pray whose people were the Jews but God's? his who called himself Jehovah. So I think he's on the right track here. This is something that John would have presupposed in his audience, that they were familiar with Genesis, that they were familiar with this idea that God creates through his word. And there's even more, I think, that they would have been familiar with because there's literature in between the Testaments that equates God's word with God's wisdom. That, I think, connects John's prologue to Proverbs chapter 8. But I'm not going to talk about that today for lack of time. So if we go back to our four options, it looks like you shouldn't say it's not the same God. You should say it is the same God that we were talking about before. And then that would leave us with the top two options. But remember, I thought that upper left one was docetic. It has a Jesus that only appears to be human and isn't really a human. Obviously, John is against this. If you've read the first letter from John, he denounces people who won't say that Christ came in the flesh. Coming in the flesh means being a man, right? So if your doctrine of Christ is that he's some kind of wonderful heavenly something or other, but he had the appearance of a man, John is very against that. We know that he's not going to endorse any kind of docetism. And so I think you can rule out three of the four options. And basically, I think the dynamic monarchians were correct. Whatever the Logos is, it's not a being. It's like an attribute or an action of God or even both. We already mentioned that orthodoxy eventually broke hard in the direction of the fourth option here in the lower right of the chart. How did that happen? Well, basically it happened because of Logos theory. This you can trace right back to the early ex-Platonist and Christian philosopher Justin Martyr who died and was martyred because he wouldn't deny his Christian faith in about the year 165. Very interesting character, Justin Martyr. We have this long dialogue with Trypho the Jew that he wrote that may derive from an actual conversation he had with a rabbi around the year 135 or so. And we have some apologies that he wrote, kind of public defenses of Christianity. And kind of weirdly, he wore the philosopher's toga there was a special outfit that you would wear as a philosopher in ancient times in Greece and Rome, 
It's kind of like the Hindu holy men where they would wear a special hairdo or a special outfit. Like, oh, well, that's a holy man, right? Philosophers, they weren't, you know, university professors, but they were considered to have, you know, some wonderful mystical knowledge and to be kind of like holy men. So he, he tried to have it both ways. He wanted to be a Christian. He didn't think that uh, the Platonists could really give you knowledge of God, but he thought that you could get knowledge of God through studying prophecy and learning through Jesus and things like that. So he did become a Christian, but whether he left behind all of his Platonic ideas is another thing. He tells us in his kind of biographical account that he was like a convert to Platonism. Platonism was basically a religion in those days. But then he converted away. But anyway, there was this idea that was current, and it was due really to Plato, the philosopher in the 300s BC. He wrote this dialogue called the Timaeus. And the Timaeus has this long yarn about creation and how all things supposedly came to be. And it's just this imaginary tale It's not clear what you're supposed to make of this and and whether he actually thinks it's true or not. But in part of it, the ultimate source, what we would call God, God is too high and separate from this cruddy, dirty, nasty world down here to have any direct interaction with it. And so in this tale that Plato tells, the way that God creates is he can't do it by himself. So first, he kind of emanates out this other being called the Demiurge, or the craftsman. And it says, this being is neither created nor uncreated. He's like halfway in between. So he needs this in-between being to create, because somehow he can't do it. Now this is a very strange idea that an all-powerful God can't create the heavens and the earth. How would you be all-powerful if you couldn't do that? But this is what they thought. People like Justin thought that there had to be this lesser God that created directly on behalf of God the Father. This is the Logos. They also thought in this time, so we're talking about mid-100s on through the mid-200s. Mere man Christology, obviously that's wrong. This is when they coined the phrase mere man, psilanthropos in Greek. It was mocking the non-Logos theorists. Like, your Jesus is just a guy. Ha! Huh. Dummies? That's a mere man. I think this is mind-bogglingly wrong-headed. To call the Messiah, with all that's involved in being the Messiah a mere man, is stupid. But they thought that, you know, no matter how high Jesus' calling was, no matter how much God empowered him and how much God did through him, they thought, well, if there wasn't another being in there, then that's a, quote, mere man. They just thought, hey, the way you detect beings is by their actions or the results of the actions. So if you see crying, that's a sign of suffering. So you know there's really a man there. So there must have been a man there. But if you see miracles and divine teaching, oh, there must be a God there. And so there must be a man and a God there in Jesus. Well, it can't be the high God, because in one place, toward the end of his dialogue with Trypho, Justin Martyr, he basically mocks the idea that God could be incarnate. It says, not even the stupidest person would think that the high God could come down to some little corner of this earth and do stuff here. They did not believe that Jesus was God incarnate. No. They thought Jesus was an incarnation of this second lesser God. And Justin literally calls him a second God. And he's very clear that he's a lesser God as well. He says, we hold him in the second place, like we honor him. Not as much as we honor God, but anyway, more than the others, he's, he comes in second place. Isn't that pretty good? He gets the silver medal. 
that's how he viewed. And the whole, then there's the Holy Spirit, which is in third place, and then the angels below that. So when you see Jesus' divine teaching and his miracles, oh, there's a God there. Now, the dynamic monarchians, I think, had the right answer to this. Yes, there is a God there. And he tells you which one. He says, my father does his works in me. That's the God in Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You don't need this lesser God theory. This looking at effects and discerning what kind of being they come from, this is stupid. If you looked at Moses and saw him part the Red Sea and predict the future and deliver God's law to the people, you say, aha, Moses must be a God-man. There must be a divine nature there. No. God empowered Moses. Okay, well, even to a greater degree, God empowered Jesus. In this gospel, he mentions that God gives the Messiah his spirit without measure. So this is Logos theory. This was a theory that was popular with some of the elites in Rome, where Justin Martyr was active and in other highly educated places. And why was that? Well, it was pretty embarrassing to educated pagans and people from a pagan background that Christianity was this religion founded 100 years ago or less by this Jew, those are weirdos, nobody likes the Jews, by this weird Jew who got himself killed seemingly for some kind of crime against the state or who knows what. So Jesus was an embarrassment to these guys, some of these people who were Christians and wanting to defend Christianity. You know, he was a Jew with a criminal record, basically. In fact, he got the death penalty. I mean, who would keep company like that? So yeah, obviously, this lesser god, the Logos, this was the same god that inspired all the Greek philosophers. It's like God's reason, and it's like the reason that's in all of us. But especially in the great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics. So yeah, our religion, yeah, we have God, sure, but we also have this Logos, and this is really awesome because this is actually who is inspiring all these wonderful guys that you guys love, like Plato. Executed Jew, did we mention the Logos, who's the direct creator, who inspires all men of reason, people like us? So, I mean, some of these guys like Athenagoras uh, and Theophilus, they will write whole books defending Christianity. They don't mention Jesus one time. But they will mention this guy, this second God, because it was cool. It was what the cool kids were interested in back then. Now, I said that this was an elite view in that time. How do I know that? Nobody did a uh, Barna poll among all the Christians back then. I mean, I don't think the early Christians were very theological. I don't think they had a lot of systematic thinking about God and Christ. It was more kind of just on the practical level. But some of the Logos theorists, especially Tertullian and Origen, who are the two most prominent Logos theorists in the early 200s, Tertullian up through about 225 or 30, and Origen died, I think it was in 254. They tell us repeatedly that the common herd of Christians who aren't as smart as them don't like this Logos theory business. And they're always objecting that, hey, we don't believe in two gods. We don't believe in two creators. Where'd you guys get this stuff from? Even in the baptismal creeds, the earliest creeds that we have, that they would um, have new converts confess to be baptized, they begin like 
all the early creeds, you know, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. Okay, well, there's one creator there, right? And there's one God, and it's the Father Almighty. So one God, one creator. They found offensive this idea that God had to do it indirectly, or the Logos is really the direct creator, but God's kind of sponsoring the whole thing. And their slogan was against the Logos theorists, we are faithful to apostolic tradition, we uphold the monarchy of the Father. This is why they're called monarchians by historians. You know, the rule, the reign, the regime of one God, the Father. So monarchians are basically people who rejected Logos theory. And according to some of the Logos theory people, they were the majority, and they were the common folk among Christians, not the elite. How late does this go on? Well, things aren't terribly clear. I'll give you a kind of answer in a minute. So this two gods or one god question is really a difficult one for the Logos theorists. One of the most exciting discoveries in the history of early Christian theology was in the 20th century, they discovered a lost little dialogue by Origen, who is the greatest early Christian scholar, basically. And there was this bishop named Heraclides, or Clides, and he was teaching something that people thought sounded off. So they held a conference of bishops, and they brought in Origen to kind of try to set the guy straight. So it wasn't like later councils. It wasn't sponsored by the emperor. It wasn't a judicial kind of council that was going to throw you out and excommunicate you and things like that. It was a synod of bishops, but they were just, you know, let's all come and reason together and see if we can work this out. And so in this dialogue, Origen, you know, he kind of intimidates this poor guy and questions him in front of everybody. And these are Origen's words as recorded in the dialogue. He says, God is the Almighty, the uncreated, the supreme who made all things. Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, being other than the God in whose form he existed. Right? If Jesus is in the form of God, that means he's not God. That means he's like God. Was, he says, this Jesus was a God before he came into the body. In one sense, there are two gods, while in another sense, there is one God. And later on, he says, now, I, hey, I, some of the brethren take offense that we talk about two gods. He, he says this because there was probably a gasp coming out of these bishops, but, you know, it didn't really bother him that much. If you're talking about God just like a powerful being, then there's two of them. There's God, and then there's the Logos. They're two different beings. And he thinks the God eternally generated the Logos. He clearly thinks the Logos is not the same God as God the Father. And if you want to talk about a God in the sense of the ultimate source of everything else, well, there's this one God. That's the Father Almighty, like the Creed says. He believes in two gods. If a God is like a powerful self, he does have two gods. He's got one true God, and he's got this lesser God. But eventually, orthodoxy ends up in a different place. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the tradition moves from God and the Logos as two gods to God and the Logos as two, quote, gods.
So in the revised Nicene Creed of 381, this is from the council at Constantinople, I think they understood the same words differently in 325 and in 381. If you want to see what I mean by that, it's in a chapter of my book, What is the Trinity? But part of the famous Nicene Creed says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, in the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all eons, before all ages, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Here we have two instances of the word God. And now we're actually talking about Trinitarians, people who believe that there are three persons in God. How many gods do they think they're referring to? One. But the things they're referring to are, they're not the triune God as such, right? They're in the triune God. They're referring to two different, in their terms, two persons. So these persons, which supposedly share the divine essence, they're calling them God. Okay, so they're talking about two gods. They're using the word God equivocally. The true God that's from the true God, the first true God they mention there is the Son, or the Logos, the Word, and the second one is supposed to be the Father. In their mind, they're not talking about two gods, they're talking about two, quote, gods, two different ones which are called God. Strictly speaking, it's the Trinity which they think is God, but they're willing because those share the divine essence to call each of them God. Another later development, which when you first learn it is kind of shocking, is that they kind of deliberately forgot about the Logos theories. It's in this quotation from Athanasius, the famous polemicist on behalf of the Nicene Creed, writing during the controversy that came after the 325 Council. And basically in this quote, he's mocking the idea that God would have had to create indirectly through another. Well, that was the whole idea with the Logos theories. But now it's stupid. Now we've forgotten about it. So they kind of used Logos theories to get a second God into the picture. Oh, because God couldn't create directly. And by the time you go on 150 years, like, oh, well, obviously there was only one God involved in creation, not two. It's bizarre. So he says, if the Arians, the so-called Arians, say that the Logos or the Son alone was brought to be by God alone, and other things were created by God through the Son, right? that's precisely what Justin Martyr thought. That's precisely what Origen thought, although there was eternal generation. It's precisely what Tertullian thought. But now, now that he, he seems to think the Arians just came up with this out of the blue on their own, which is foolish and uninformed. This, he says, is a futile and novel idea. Well, it was novel as of the year 150. It wasn't novel in 345, whenever he was writing this. Again, it's irreligious to suppose that God disdained as if a humble task to form the creatures himself, which came after the Son. He, through his word, made all things small and great. Really, Athanasius thinks that fundamentally... God and the Word are the same He. He just thinks God, God's Word animated a body. So he's like, no, there aren't two creators, there's one creator, right? Just forgetting what they were saying earlier. Another later development, the idea of different persons, same God. So here we have the famous Western Bishop Augustine mangling John 17, 1 through 3. He says, well, the proper order of the words is that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent as the only true God. No, that's 
not it's not the proper order of the words, right? He's just like, well, this doesn't sound like Trinitarian orthodoxy. There must have been some mistake here. Well, there is some mistake here, but it's Augustine's. Consequently, therefore, the Holy Spirit is also understood, blah, blah, blah. Nor the Father and Son, Holy Spirit, three gods, but the Trinity itself is the one only true God, and yet the Father and Son and Spirit are three persons. Well, John didn't have that kind of idea going on. There's zero evidence in the Gospel of John about an idea of multiple persons in God. So, as far as the timeline, honestly, I don't think any of these ideas have really ever died out. But what you see in history is, as you enter the Middle Ages, the mainstream church becomes very uniform. Information is strictly controlled. Churches are strictly controlled. Who gets to be a bishop is strictly controlled. And um, if you have some of these other opinions, you're just, you're out of luck. If the view is that Jesus is a man who's empowered by God to do amazing things as God's Messiah, and the one true God, that's the Father, you want to know where did that start? Well, have you ever read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? That's exactly what you have. Jesus doesn't pre-exist. Jesus isn't God. Jesus is the Son of God and a real man. Well, it's the same in John, really, once you understand John, although John has been made difficult to interpret by later traditions. Okay, but then you have this intermediate state where you've got the one true God, oh, and there's also this lesser God, and you have this as soon as you had Logos theories come in, right around 150 with Justin Martyr, and then a bunch of people piggybacking on the thoughts of Justin Martyr. And you had those people all the way up through the year 381 and beyond, right? You had the so-called Aryan barbarian tribes. Eusebius, the famous church historian that you've probably heard of, he thought this exactly, greater and a lesser God. And by the time you get to about 381, you have those three so-called gods, three quote gods, but they're really just persons who are really the same God. They're persons in the, in the divine nature, in the one true God. But you don't see that in the time of John, you don't see it in the time of Justin, but you do see it right around just before that year 381. Okay, so the way I think John and his audience would have heard this is is something like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Greek, he says it the other way around. I take it that he's being emphatic. In Greek, he says, and God was the Word. And the reason I think is he doesn't say the God is because it might make you think that God is the subject of that third assertion. But no, the subject of these first three claims, it's the word that he's making claims about. The word was in the beginning, the word was with God, and God was the word. What he's telling you is it's not somebody else. Okay, but arguably he's still personifying here. He, I put those quotation marks in, of course, In ancient times, they didn't exist, quotation marks. And it's a shame because they make things a lot clearer in certain instances. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, this word of God. And without him, not one thing came into being. I'm on the side of the dynamic monarchians here. Now, just before I finish, just one objection and my answer. When you read Trinitarian commenters, they love to wax eloquent about the meaning of pros, the Greek word which is usually translated with. And they say, well, this shows you 
that the logos is not some kind of abstract idea or divine attribute or divine action. No, the logos is definitely, it's a someone because it's said to be with God, with like face to face, or maybe he's mediating between God and humans. But anyway, it's a person to person kind of relationship that this communicates to say that the word is pros God, towards God, with God. With God, like person to person, that's their point. Okay, what I'm suggesting is, no, the word of God is just a way of referring to God. It's like his wisdom or something like that. And it's not a self in its own right. It's not an additional God or an additional person. So how could, how could a non-self be said to be with God in that sense? Okay, here's my answer. Proverbs chapter 8 from the Septuagint version, which the New Testament writers would have looked at. It says, He, the Lord, established me, and this is Lady Wisdom, this character, hopefully you remember her from Proverbs. She's calling out, you know, fools, you know, gain me, I'm more valuable than gold and silver, and all this stuff. Well, she's talking here. He established me before time, in the beginning, hmm, that sounds familiar, NRK, Before he made the earth, even before he made the depths, before the mountains were settled, and before all hills, he begets me. When he, God, prepared the heaven, I, Lady Wisdom, was present with him. And when he prepared his throne upon the winds, and when he strengthened the foundations of the earth, I was by him, suiting myself to him. I was that wherein he took delight, and daily I rejoiced in his presence continually. Now, let me ask you, when God created the heavens and the earth, did he have this lady helping him? Or a female spirit, like a goddess or something? But look at all this personal language here, man. She's rejoicing in his presence. She's present with him. She was by him. Doesn't that sound like a person-to-person relationship? Yes, it does. So, this is my answer. This was a familiar tradition, and it's not only in this book, it's in some other books that were written before John. It's not only in Proverbs, it's in some later Jewish writings. So I think this is something the audience could handle. They could see that the word was being personified. And this is what personification is. If a guy has a boat and he loves his boat, and he says, I want to spend the rest of my life with her, she's my one and only I guess he's really lonely or something. He's a rich guy with no wife. That doesn't mean his boat is a lady. That means he's talking about his boat in highly personal terms. He's personifying the boat. So whenever you have personification, this is what it is. It's personal language being applied to something that's not a person. Okay. I think there's a lot more that needs to be said about the prologue. I think you have to show the writer's train of thought through the entire thing. And I haven't done that, but... I've done the first part of it, so that's all I have to say for now. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying this long, deep dive in the podcast into how to interpret the famous prologue to the fourth gospel. Let us know what you think on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or in our Facebook group. This week's thinking music has been the track The Stars Look Different, Ziggy Stardust Mix by Spinning Merkaba. 
As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Thanks again to the McGinty Town Church of God for sponsoring the conference at which I gave this presentation. And thanks also to Sharon Gill of 21st Century Reformation for letting me use the first several minutes of her audio as I forgot to press the record button. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.